I am so glad that I am here to hear these testimonies and the interaction. Congratulations to all of the graduates, if we can call you that, of the first year of your college life, of the Insight Program. May God prosper you in all that you set your hand to do. I pray that he will establish the work of your hands. I have, at last count, 29 nieces and nephews, and I was with one of them in the car today, and he said, he's a student at Bethel, he said, I might be interested in firefighting as a vocation. And I know some wonderful firefighters, so I'm excited about that. I'm glad such people exist. And and he said, I said that to a friend, and he said, so why are you in college? And we kind of looked at each other like, that's a dumb question. I hope you think it's a dumb question. Because the assumption behind that question is you only do education for skill sets. And the skill set for doing firefighting is not liberal arts. Well, that's not the main reason to go to college. And I still remember it well enough to know how happy I was that I didn't know what I was going to do when I grew up when I went to college so that I didn't waste my time getting ready to do it. But instead, looked at my college as an opportunity to become a person, to become wise, to get exposed to more reality. You know, I'm sure you have read often this year, uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ Jesus. Now, it would be an absolutely foolish inference to draw from that verse, Colossians 2, 3, that therefore you don't need education, you just need Jesus. That's a category confusion. If all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus, because he made them all and they're all rooted in him, it just might be implicit in that verse that you should have your eyes open in the world that he made so that you know him better. Not just that you find a way to him that avoids the world in the hopes that you might know all that you need to know. Don't need math. Don't need English. Don't need history. Don't need anthropology. Don't need philosophy. You just need Jesus as though you wouldn't find Jesus in all those places. As if as if the things you saw there wouldn't lead you up the beam into the Christ from which they're all streaming when there's truth in those areas. So, I don't feel excited when I hear a question like, you want to be a firefighter? Why are you in college? You want to be a homemaker? Why are you in college? We're in school to see a whole panorama of life that comes out in all manifestations of disciplines in the hopes that all these beams of light refracted in human minds will lead us to the source of all things so that we know Him better. Every time 
I sent Talitha off to school. Now, she's in the fifth grade. I tried to remember to connect for her what she's about to do today with Jesus. And not in a superficial way, like, well, if you know this fact, it might be useful in witnessing. Well, that's true and wonderful. But rather, if, if, you, if you study math, you kind of know God better, I promise you. As you advance through the complexities of math from fifth grade to calculus, you will find out things about the nature of the mind of God that you would not get any other way. Same thing with the way language works. Same things with processes in history. Same thing in politics and social studies. Art. So, thank you so much for believing that and not being too worried about what you're going to do when you grow up. You know, I I went four years to Wheaton, three years to Fuller, three years to graduate school, and at age 28 did not know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was 28. I just knew a few very central realities. I love the Bible. I want to use it to help other people obey it for Jesus' sake. That's some, I mean, that, that leaves open a lot of possibilities. And I didn't know. So you know what I did? I took the first job that was offered to me. That's what I did. And, and then I took uh, the second job that was offered to me, and I've been here ever since. So I'm here to try to share a little wisdom that I could care less, as long as it's not sin, what vocation you use this wisdom in. Um, four mistakes I don't want you to make. That's what I'm going to talk about. Four mistakes that I began to learn how not to make uh, from my mother, it's Mother's Day, so I want to make sure I say that, and then from my father, and then from wonderful teachers at Wheaton College, and, and on through my educational life, and to this day, watching wise people live their lives, I'm learning these lessons. So I'm going to state them negatively, that is, mistakes that you could make, and I don't want you to make them, and I'll make a comment about each one. Mistake number one, big is better than small. It's interesting how we've heard some testimonies to that already. Mike, outlandishly speaking, what could well be true that this little class could, in God's mind, be the most significant freshman year in the world. What an outlandish thing to say. Sort of like saying a mustard seed could fill the earth or Five loaves and two fish could feed 5,000. Or 300 men with Gideon could undo the Amalekites when they filled the valley like the sands covered the sea. I mean, silly things like that, Mike. Big is better than small is a, mi- a mistake that uh, many people will try to get you to believe. We've spent about 150 years. You know, the biggest problem with evolution is not that it relates to biology, but that it relates to everything. And 
up until the First World War or so, people were believing it, that things always get better. Time goes by, things get better. That's what evolution does. It Survival of the fittest. So you always have the best surviving. Well, it doesn't work that way. And history won't necessarily bear that out. At least that's my reading of Mark 13 and Matthew 24. That it won't necessarily only get better toward the end of history and God's reestablishment of His kingdom where it will be better. Big is better than small is not true. And I love to teach it to children with stories like not only Gideon, but David and Goliath. Isn't that just a great story? I just read it again because we're reading through First Samuel. And... Uh, I have such good memories of teaching this to my boys because this is a real boy story, I'll tell you. Come on, I'm going to feed you to the birds. My kids just love that line. And, uh, of course, David responds to that Goliath statement. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give your dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. You know the reason God uses David-like people with slingshots is because he's jealous to get the credit. So it would be just like him, wouldn't it, Mike? It would be just like him to use this little class to shake the world. In ways nobody could dream, but only God. Loaves and fish. He who is faithful in very little will be counted faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little things is also unrighteous in much. When I was in seminary, Knowing somehow I wanted to use the Bible vocationally, I was willing to be an English teacher saturated with the Bible. That was in, that's in my journal. I was willing to be a writer. I was willing to be a missionary. I was willing to be a teacher. I was willing to be a pastor just so I can have the Bible at the center of my life and help people understand it, live it, and praise the God who's revealed in it. What do you do to get a start? <laughs> well, you join a church. You join a church. You don't play footloose and fancy free. You join a church and then you, you say to the leadership, I'm available and I'll just do whatever you want me to do. And I said that to John McClure, the head of the youth department at Lake Avenue Congregational Church. And he said, well, we need a seventh grade boy Sunday school teacher this year. I said, count me in. So my freshman year at seminary, I taught seventh grade boys. And I poured my life into those boys. There's about nine of them. Steve Fuller was one of them. Dan Fuller's son who's a pastor now in San Jose. Four hours every Saturday afternoon, I worked on my lesson. 
And at the end of that year, I said, now what do you want me to do? Same thing? He said, nope, now we need a ninth grade teacher. I said, okay. So I jumped over a, a class and taught ninth grade. Midway through that year, the Galilean Sunday school class of young marriage said, we would like you to teach our class if they can do without you in the end. This is the way it's gone. My dad said, you keep the room clean where you are, son. He'll open the door when the next one's ready. You give your life to seventh graders, they might need you at ninth graders. You give your life to ninth graders, they might need you with some young marrieds. And then Sanford Lazor, William Sanford Lazor said, would you be my Greek tutor for the summer? Yeah, I, I don't know Greek very well. He said, you will. <laughs> you will once you write the index for my book. <clears throat> and so I taught Greek. And then I taught Sunday school in Germany. And little by little, I discovered gifts. I didn't know what I could do. You, most of you know the story that when I was in high school, I could not speak in front of a group. What, what, the, what you did... What you did here, those what four or five of you came and spoke, I stand amazed. I could not have done that in a thousand years at your age. I would have totally shut down. And so it was incrementally that the Lord put me where He put me because I think by grace He just helped me to work my head off at whatever task He gave me to do. So if somebody gives you a task, you just do that with all your might. And people will look at that and they'll say, maybe then you should do this. And pray that you don't ever get Peter principled into a job beyond you. I think I, I just need to stop right where I am. I can do anything else. I've reached the apex of my, I love what I do here. And I hope that I can just keep doing it faithfully to the end. So your life, don't worry about big Worry about faithful. Worry about working hard and giving yourself to what your hand finds to do with all your might. I use the phrase ripple effect a lot. That's one of the little catchphrases around here. I haven't been able to figure out how to get it into a hyphenated word because we like hyphenated phrases, but ripple effect. Uh, well, maybe it is hyphenated. I don't know. Um, what I mean by ripple effect is when I pray about this moment, like this afternoon, what should I pray? I always pray ripple effect. I'm dropping a pebble into 40 lives here, right? 50. I'm dropping a pebble. Other pebbles were dropped. What is that? Whatever God wants to make of it, that's what it is. And no more. So you pray, Lord, I'm dropping my pebble this Sunday. I'm dropping my pebble in Chicago or Indianapolis, I go out and drop my little pebbles at a banquet here or something there. And I just pray, Lord, if you breathe upon a ripple, you know what it becomes? A wave. Maybe even a tidal wave. If God wills. It isn't so much the, the little pebble that will determine whether it reaches the shore. It's whether the wind catches it. And so we drop our pebbles faithfully and we... Pray. That's mistake number one. The others won't be quite that long. Big is better than small was the mistake. Don't count on it. Be faithful in small. God will do what He wills. 
Number two, mistake number two, new is better than old. Um, ideas. People think new ideas are better than old ideas. That's not necessarily so. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths. Seek and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. C.S. Lewis, one of the most influential people, right up there with Jonathan Edwards in my life because of a season where I read all of his nonfiction. I think there may be a few essays I haven't read. He said, I have lived nearly 60 years with myself and my own century, and I am not so enamored by either as to desire no glimpse of a world beyond them. He thought of the 20th century, he thought of his 60 years of life, and he considered, you know, I would be a richer man if I got outside my century and outside myself. And so he prescribed this. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. If that is too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. We all need the the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century lies where we have never suspected it. None, we should say the 21st century, none of us can fully escape this blindness. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books. I think that's true. Keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries uh, opening yourself to the folly of what you just heard on NPR. I was listening today, little parenthesis, I mean, just to the folly of NPR. These sophisticated news people, I only listen to NPR, I don't listen to anything else hardly, but it's, <clears throat> they're interviewing this woman because she's just written a novel, or maybe it's nonfiction about her life, and how she got pregnant as a, maybe you've heard this today, she got pregnant as a 16-year-old, and her mother disowned her, and she went to live with her father. They were divorced, and they kept her in the house and didn't let her get out. It's probably, I don't know how old she is now, maybe 40. And the interviewer said, why did, why did they feel that way about your pregnancy? Why did they feel you were contagious? Lady, now you may not think it's shameful to get pregnant out of wedlock. That's irrelevant here. 
But you're asking this question as if you don't know why one might feel that way 40 years ago. <laughs> the, the clean sea breezes are not blowing through this lady's head. Just a little teeny, small, unclean, stagnant, non-breeze has taken up residency in her brain. Such that she wants to ask the question, why do you think it was that they were concerned to keep you out of circulation? Like, there are a few possible answers to that. Old people should be respected. Job 12.12 12, Wisdom is with aged men. With long life is understanding. So don't read first and mainly books by emergent writers. Read first and mainly books by J.I. Packer. Old men. R.C. Sproul. Men with long battle years who've learned not only from the Bible and from books, but from life. Find, you know, what I, what I, the advice that I gave when students came to me at Bethel, to what should I major in or what, who should I take? I said, I don't really care at all what you major in. Find the wisest teachers and take everything they offer. I don't care who they are. Just find the, ask around, ask. Who are the wise teachers? Who are the teachers when you come out of their class, you just feel like light years of wisdom has happened? The, you know, the, the skill, you, you, you pick that up, right? You pick that up. But, but as far as what's going on at the level of wisdom and growth and perspective, ask about that. The Reformation you've been studying at some stage, the Reformation was a great leap forward precisely by going backward. They rediscovered Augustine, they rediscovered the church fathers, and mainly they rediscovered the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, and it flowered with what liberated the church, I believe, from the kind of folly that was so prevalent in the medieval Roman Catholic system. So, go back, especially to the Bible. That's mistake number two. New is better than old. Mistake number three. Having is better than being. Having is better than being. Luke 12.15 Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That's a very provocative statement. Not even when you have all that you could dream of having does your life consist in it. What's he saying? He's not just saying riches are dangerous, which they are, 
He says that in other places and more clearly. He's saying, that's just not what life is about. And there's no correlation between the, the fullness of life and the muchness of having. In fact, there's probably an inverse correlation. Since he says it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, I saw a picture in the paper the other day of Carnata, um, Santa, it's the big island that's burning off, off San Diego. Catalina. The picture had the Carnata Bridge in the front of it. Because Carnata Bridge goes over to the Catalina Island, I think, whatever. I mean, it goes over to a strip. It's not Catalina. You gotta take a boat to get to Catalina, but, uh, the Carnata Bridge is in the foreground. And I remember only visited, been across that bridge one time. And on the other side of the bridge are these, this is now 20 years ago, where the condo started at three quarters of a million. So this is a rich place. So the Carnata Bridge, it goes up, curves around, goes over to the rich place. And there's a beautiful beach over there, and they actually do have flecks of what look like gold in the sand. So that's why it's called what it is. I was told there that there are more people who jump off the Carnado Bridge to kill themselves than off the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge is near poor people, and the Carnado Bridge is near rich people. And if you were to do a study of suicide in this country, there would be no correlation between poverty and suicide. At least not a clear one-to-one. Riches do not satisfy the soul. They do not make you be what God makes you to be. Being and having are not the same thing. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to be something, not have something. Don't reduce your education to acquiring marketable skills. Study to become And behold, not to be rich. Study to become and to behold. You know, in the end, we're going to behold the Lord. And (laughs) the the way Paul argues about riches is this. Don't boast in men because all things are yours. Whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So don't boast in, I've got this teacher, I've got that teacher, I've got this advantage. It's all coming to you. You are heirs of the universe. And so if you if you care about having, just wait. You will. Right now, become the kind of person who will know what to do with it when you get it. And it will take a certain kind of being. In the end... We will see Him and we want to be the kind of people who can see Him well. Finally, so here they are summing up. Mistake number one, big is better than small. Mistake number two, new is better than old. Mistake number three, having is better than being. And finally, mistake number four, visible is better than invisible. Looks. The New Testament cares about your not caring much about your outward appearance compared to your inward reality. 
Your adornment must be not merely external, braiding of hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That's addressed to women. The same kind of thing would be said to men who are into bodybuilding or hairstyling or body piercing or two buttons open with a gold cross on a hairy chest or whatever you think is visually cool. The Bible is... Just don't go there very often. Go here to your heart. Become an invisibly beautiful person so that your behavior, which is visible, will be different. God is invisible, and He is the greatest reality of all. No man has ever seen God. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Which I think means we treasure in this world and we bank on in this world the most important things. And they're not seen. We're not walking by sight. If you... If you Structure your life around sight, it will be out of touch with reality. Sounds paradoxical. The world structures their life around sight. Last thing I heard before I came over here on NPR is all about investing, right? That's what you do on Sunday afternoon on NPR is you learn how to put your money in the right place, which means put it everywhere because if you put it in one place, it will get bad. So diversify, diversify, diversify. I think I've heard this before. Turn that one off. These people are totally building their lives around what they can hold, touch, see. The thought that the most important things in the world, especially God and the risen Christ, are invisible. First Peter 1.8, and I'll finish. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus Christ cannot be seen right now. And nobody's more precious to us. Nothing is more precious to us than Jesus. We will see Him again. But the main thing we will experience when we see Him with our eyes is the visible manifestation of invisible glory. The glory of love, the glory of wisdom, the glory of truth, the glory of spiritual beauties. And so, don't make the mistake of thinking visible is better than invisible. Concluding summary. If God is God, and He is, small with Him is better than big with anybody. His old things, His old things are better than anybody's new things. Being His child is better than having the world. And better to be blind 
with the invisible God than to see everything without Him. Father, I thank You so much for the investment of these Insight students that they have made in us at Bethlehem and in their future with You. And I ask Your fullest blessing of wisdom upon their lives. Yes, they will remember a few facts, but oh, they will have become something they cannot shake. And I pray that you would breathe upon the pebbles, hundreds and thousands of them that were dropped into their lives and these pebbles that were dropped here. Breathe upon those ripples and turn them into waves of blessing for this sin-sick, fallen, needy world. We want not to waste our lives. We want them to count for you. So take every one of these students. They think they're small. They think they're insignificant. In one sense, that's true and gloriously true. Because we have this treasure in clay pots that the surpassing power might belong to you. So don't let them be daunted by their smallness or daunted by their seeming insignificance. Let them, grant them, make them faithful. May they set their hand to what you give them to do and do it with all their might, I pray. And then you turn it for the glory of Jesus. In His name we pray.